0: Church, let's turn once again to the words of this one that we love, Jesus Christ our Lord. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 today as we continue journeying to the cross to the lens of Mark's gospel in the final days of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. You know, one of our commitments here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church is to Christ-centered worship. We want to honor Christ in all that we do. We want to honor Christ as we come together as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And eventually, everyone must come to grips with Jesus. Everyone must uh, look at the uh, claims of Jesus. Everyone who encounters Jesus must uh, determine uh, how they are going to respond to uh, this Jesus Christ. Uh, either in belief or disbelief. We don't have to uh, wrestle with the identity of just anyone and everyone, but when someone makes the claims that Jesus makes, we must wrestle with his identity and come to a conclusion. We must either uh, accept him, bow and believe in him, or uh, we can refuse and reject him. Jesus is met with rather extreme responses, responses that are conveyed in our passage of Scripture for today. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, as you find your place there in the Scriptures, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's Word. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people and to read your word we thank you that you speak to us, that you have spoken to us, and that by the presence and power of your spirit, you are with us even now. Lord, guide us that we might rightly understand the truths of your word and apply them to our lives as your people. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, both John and Matthew, uh, two other gospel writers, uh, recount this story, the story of... A woman anointing Jesus with this expensive perfume days before his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. In fact, Luke accounts a similar story, uh, but there are enough differences uh, that he is probably recounting a different story that has some things in common. In John's version of this story, he says that this story took place on the Friday before Palm Sunday... Whereas Mark recounts this event with other teachings and events right in the heart of Holy Week. And this is a good reminder for us that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not always so much interested in a strict chronology as, uh, as they are in conveying a particular message. In other words, Mark and the others write with a message they want to convey. They write with a particular agenda. They're not shy about what that agenda is. Mark, remember, tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he writes about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And he calls on people to wrestle with his identity and ultimately to become followers of this Jesus. And so Mark includes this story where he does, intentionally, I believe, encapsulating... Uh, This sacrificial and deep devotion to Jesus displayed by this woman with stories and summaries of Jesus' rejection and the hatred of Jesus at the hands of of others. Extreme responses to Jesus. In particular, the self-righteous hate Jesus. The self-righteous hate Jesus. We see this in the gospel accounts and certainly I think is true in the world today. The self-righteous eventually, when they encounter Jesus and the claims of Jesus, will reject and and oppose him. Who are the self-righteous? Well, they are those uh, that consider themselves righteous before God based upon their own efforts. Now, we as believers, as Christians, as people, men and women, boys and girls who follow and submit to Jesus, we can be confident of our righteousness before God, but not because of our efforts, rather because of God's grace extended to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the moment that we repent and believe in Jesus for salvation, the righteousness, the innocence, moral perfection, from a positional standpoint, so to speak, is applied to our lives through faith. But that's not self-righteousness. That's imputed righteousness from Christ to us. In fact, Jesus often spoke out against self-righteousness. He warned against the self-righteousness of the teachers in his day. In fact, look back a page or so to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 and following. It says, As Jesus taught, He said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. In other words, Jesus says, watch out for the religious leaders and rulers who have misunderstood the grace of God and do what they do for show, making their efforts and attention all about themselves rather than about God. In essence, Jesus says to those who will listen, even on your best days, you don't measure up to God's standard. Your best efforts fall short of His holiness and His righteousness. But even so, He extends salvation to you. He extends righteousness to you. He extends forgiveness to you by His grace. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 recounted our sinful condition, all of our sinful condition, the sinful condition even of God's people before Him apart from, apart from God's grace. Isaiah 64 verse 6, all of us, he says, have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. All of us are characterized by sin. All of us wrestle with sin. All of us have succumbed to sin. All of us have rejected and rebelled against, against God. Our efforts are not enough. You know, sin is sort of like spilled milk, I think. You spill milk on your carpet or on a rug. You can ignore it for a little while. You can even attempt to cover it up with something. But if you don't spend some time really cleaning it, eventually you're going to know that it's there. Our best efforts, no matter how many they are, how numerous they are, cannot cover even one sinful thought that we have. God's standard is perfection for He is holy and every selfish thought, every ridicule, every immoral deed confirms our condemnation before a perfect and holy and just and eternal God without His grace. But thank God that He is a God who is characterized by grace. Are you depending on His grace? Church, are you depending on His grace? grace are you leaning on his grace are you looking to his grace to determine your position before him your worth your salvation your eternal status See, the chief priests and the teachers of the law in eighty thirty 30 were not too interested in god's grace through christ for it threatened their own self-righteous positions of prestige perhaps a good measurement for us When it comes to examining our own status and outlook before God, is to ask ourselves internally Am I offended by the notion that my sin had to be paid for in such a gruesome and violent way? Or am I deeply moved by this extravagant display of God's love and patience and grace with me? Are you offended by the cross? Or are you moved by the cross? So the gospel is clear on this much. The scriptures are clear on this much. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we're still struggling with sin, characterized by sin, lost in sin, deserving of his judgment. Even then, Christ died for us. Paul recounts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse Verses 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Church, are you depending on his undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor? Are you depending on God's grace? Self righteous hate Jesus, however, The humble love Jesus sacrificially. The humble who encounter Jesus and recognize His position and His worth, His status, love Him sacrificially. We're told in verse 3 about this expensive perfume made of pure nard worth more than a year's wages. Think $55,000 or somewhere in that neighborhood in our terms today. Friends, this is extravagant love. This is deep sacrifice. This product, this perfume, came from a tree root, made from a tree root extract in India, some 3,000 miles or so away from Israel. Before Airfare, before motorboats, of course. This is great worth. No matter what kind of income this particular woman had, this is deep devotion and sacrifice out of love for her friend and her Lord. See, in ancient times, in biblical times, healing was used for, not healing, anointing was used for a variety of, of reasons, usually done with much cheaper olive oil. It was done for healing purposes. It was done to set apart. It was used in embalming practices. You might remember the story of Samuel the prophet going to the home of Jesse and Bethlehem and anointing David as the next king of Israel, setting him apart for this purpose. Kings and priests in the Old Testament were anointed. They were set apart for a particular task from the Lord. Like the Hebrew word Messiah the Greek title, Christ, both mean anointed one. So I think there's a multi-layered effect of what is being communicated here through this woman's actions, probably apart from her even knowing it. First, she is anointing Jesus. She is setting him apart. She is recognizing that he is called of the Lord to a particular task. She is preparing him, so to speak, without even knowing it for his, his death. And, of course, Jesus tells us that her actions also, preparing him for his burial that is at hand. Once again, Jesus proclaims that he is going to die. Probably unaware of what she's doing, this this woman loves Jesus. She serves Jesus. She is committed to Jesus and even so, church, Mark does not even mention her name. Doesn't even mention her name. It's an extravagant display of devotion and love and sacrifice, and her name is not even mentioned. The identity of the faithful often remains obscure. Obscure. This is a message here that's being conveyed. The identity of the faithful often remains obscure here in this life, on this earth. If you're a Bible scholar, then perhaps you know that John identifies who this woman is for us. John says that this is Mary, the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. And that knowledge is important. That information is important But let's not let that interfere with the intentional message that Mark is displaying here. For Mark intentionally leaves this woman's name in obscurity. Intentionally does not mention it. Look back at the text. Verse 3 says, a woman came with an alabaster jar. Again, verse 3, she broke the jar. Verse 5, and they rebuked her harshly. Verse 6, Jesus responds, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body. And verse 9, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You can say what you want, but this is intentional obscurity on Mark's part to contrast an unnamed, humble follower of Jesus of Nazareth with the rejection and the hatred of key leaders in Jerusalem, the, high, the, the, the priests, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who've been entrusted with the very scriptures themselves, and also Judas and Iscariot, verse 10. one of the original 12 invited to know and to follow and to walk with and learn from, from Jesus. The identity of the faithful often remains obscure. Her name not mentioned here, for this is not about her. It's about her Lord. And church, full disclosure here: I struggle with this. I want to be recognized and remembered as a good husband and a good father and a faithful preacher and teacher and pastor and a gracious and gifted friend. And when that struggle becomes more about me than the Lord, then I have fallen into sin and I need to repent. But truth be told, for every Martin Luther, for every Charles Spurgeon, for every Lottie Moon, for every Billy Graham, there are countless men and women who faithfully serve the Lord and sacrifice for His sake. Unknown by us, but fully known by God, who will comprise the great multitude in heaven that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, bowing before the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, serving him forever and ever. For as the identity of the faithful often remains obscure here on earth, yet the influence of the faithful continues for generations. The influence of the faithful continues for generations. I could mention a name, Kenneth C. Jones, a name that means nothing to you because you've never heard of him. A name in relative obscurity outside of one rural county in southern Kentucky, but that's the name of my grandfather longer here on earth but when i consider his life remember time with him as a child i could not help but notice his deep deep love for jesus his commitment to his church his character faithfulness and following jesus christ his lord no doubt he made an impact on me continuing to make an impact on me influencing me and, and others for generations to come i would hope and imagine Likewise, notice what Jesus says about this woman in verse 9. It says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, Jesus says, when the gospel is preached, and by the way, it's an implicit. Claim there to his own resurrection from the dead. Whenever the gospel is preached. People are going to talk about this woman. They're going to say there once was a woman. Who loved Jesus so much. Who was so committed to him. That she exhausted a year's worth of salary. Simply to anoint his head with perfume. Just days before his crucifixion. once was a woman who was characterized by such deep, deep devotion and love for God. The kind of love that Jesus said was the most important of all. kind of love that is consistent with the way Jesus responded when he was asked about the greatest commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Friends, this woman loved Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Do you love Jesus? Is He your greatest treasure and your deepest devotion? Are you willing to humbly sacrifice Personal, selfish ambitions and dreams. Financial gifts. Time that was previously carefully guarded. Willing to sacrifice whatever for the sake of his reputation near and far throughout the ends of the earth. Out of love for him. Do you love him? Do we love him? You see the self-righteous don't love him. The self-righteous hate Jesus and oppose him the humble, love Him sacrificially. Through this pericope, I think we're also met with another response to Jesus, one that doesn't initially cling to Jesus or cast Him out, but that eventually, with time, determines that He must not be for Him. Some who know Jesus betray Him. There some who know him betray him. Judas represents these. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. See, Judas was an insider. He virtually lived with Jesus for three years, watching Him, learning from Him, even entrusted as the treasurer of this Jesus group. John tells us that Judas, from time to time, would help himself to the money in the bag. In fact, John also tells us that Judas was one of the ones who spoke up and out against this lavish display of love for Jesus. Like those who perhaps grow up in the church only to abandon the faith, Judas was familiar with Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He knew Jesus, probably like you and I know our closest friends. He listened to him, he watched his miracles. But familiarity with Jesus is not enough. Friends, knowledge alone does not saved. Jesus calls for our hearts. He calls for hearts that sacrifice and bow before Him. Hearts that serve Him and trust Him fully. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? How have you come to grips with Jesus? Are you coming to grips with Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Jesus Do you believe Jesus? Do you trust him? Trust Jesus today. Turn to him. Submit to him. Bow before him. Sacrifice for him. Serve him. All the days of your life. We see some extreme responses to Jesus. Recounted here in Mark chapter 14. Perhaps the most remarkable response of all is the response of God, who is orchestrating these events to bring about His saving purposes in His perfect time. You see, despite the religious elite's effort to avoid a public scene during the week of Passover when many pilgrims would be in town, the Lord says that this sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God for the sins of the world, must coincide with Passover. Commemorating the most significant historical event and God calling the people to be His people. And now, through the life and the mission and the ministry of Jesus, through these events, a greater sacrifice is underway. A fuller deliverance is underway underway a new people are being called to know and to follow him it's no coincidence that judas's actions here fulfill the prophecy recorded in psalm 41 verse 9 about a close friend betraying jesus it's no coincidence here that this woman anoints jesus just days before his burial Friends, through this passage, we see that God works providentially to fulfill His saving purposes. God works providentially to fulfill His saving purposes. God is on a mission. He has been on a mission and He is still on a mission. And He ensures that His mission will be carried out. He is at work through an end and beyond human affairs to bring about His purposes for our good and for His glory. The truth that Paul recounts in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. And friends, if God was faithful with these events. If God was faithful in carrying out his plans to send his one and only son to the cross of Calvary, then he will be faithful with our lives as well. If we can trust Him with that mission, then we can trust Him with our lives. Do you trust Him? Let's trust Jesus today. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to open Your Word, to hear from You. Lead us now, Lord, by Your Spirit as we respond to the truths found in it, as we respond to Jesus. Lord, may we do so in in a way that glorifies Your name. Guide us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.